Welcome to episode 21 of the False Neutral Podcast. This week, we continue with part two of our conversation with Cam Vanderhorst of the Camd and Tubbed Podcast. We'll pick it up where we left off last week. So, uh, speaking of safety and things that are unsafe... Kimco did a big no-no, and big government did a really good job of protecting us from ourselves. I've been riding motorcycles for about two months, gentlemen. I've got a combined, I would say, maybe five or 600 miles on everything I've ever ridden, ever. They put me on a Kimco K-pipe, and I was able to figure out the shift pattern, like, right away. I didn't die, like I'm here talking to you guys right now. But they've all been recalled, because apparently some people can die. Well, the, the the one thing is, let's remember that the shift pattern that that has is not the most egregious non-standard shift pattern which caused them to put that law into place. Now, first of all, I will say I had a 71 BSA, which was my only right side shift, rode it for a year. Now, granted, it didn't run most of that time, but I never... I had to stop and think every time. It just never became an automatic thing. Right. Now, well, now, I think I think if you put things on different hands and different feet, like I agree that the placement of those controls should be standardized. Well, um, and, as and, far as yeah, your your shifting should always be on the left foot, and your rear brake should always be on the right foot. But Suzuki shift patterns, and I think Bridgestone. In the 60s, prior to this law being passed, had what they call rotary shifting. So that when you got to fifth gear and you came to a stop, you didn't have to click down through all the gears. They just put first gear after fifth gear. So instead of click up, click up, click, hit fifth gear, and then nothing happens when first gear was the next gear up after fifth gear. So you could be going along, and how many times have you looked for that last, you know, that sixth gear that isn't there? Yeah. Well, in this case, it would put you in first gear. So you shift <laughs> up from fifth. You shift up again, and you're in first gear. You let the the clutch out. And, of course, what happens is engine can't spin at that speed, so it locks up your rear tire. And now you're it's sliding sideways behind you. And what do you naturally think to do? I'm going to grab the clutch. Immediately... You free up that back wheel, which then snaps into place behind the front wheel, which is kind of the same thing they always teach you. If you lock up the back wheel with the brake, don't mm -hmm. just take your foot off the brake. Get down to below 20 to 15 miles an hour before you take your foot off the brake because you can you can get out of control letting coming out of a rear wheel skid can be as dangerous as going into one. So they had all these people in the 60s that were getting on this, oh, I think I got one more gear. Whoops. They grabbed the clutch. Then you let the clutch out. Now you've just high-sided while you were going straight down the street in a single vehicle accident. And somebody said, you know, we probably should not let people sell those bikes. 
Now there some of them some of the rotary shifts had neutral after fifth gear. So it was like one, two, three, four, five, neutral, one, two, three, four, five, and you just kept clicking up through all the gears. That way you only blew your motor when you tried to upshift after fifth gear. Yeah, you just money shifted it. And and so that was the only problem is that you're and you're you're neutral. Uh but it was really those rotary shifts that had first accessible from fifth that caused that law to happen, along with a whole bunch of other things like old BMWs and Triumph had the high beam switch on the headlight. So you had to completely take your hand off of the left hand grip and reach in and flick the lights on high or low beam by taking one hand off the handlebars. They were like, you know, you probably should make people make a switch that was accessible from the without taking your hand off the grip. So that that law said, okay, here's the shift pattern you have to have. This is where your your uh, all your electrical switches need to be. Your throttle needs to roll in this direction rather than the other direction. Uh there were all kinds of stuff that went into that FMVSS. And the fact that it's been around since 1975 uh nobody is used to a different shift pattern now. So I understand what you're saying. Yeah, in a, in a normal <clears throat> situation, when you're just cruising down the road, it's not that hard. In a panic situation, or if somebody doesn't know how it shifts, and it shifts different than they expect, that could freak out a new rider who hasn't been properly instructed on how that bike works. So I can appreciate you saying, wow, this is just overreaching on the government's part. Um, when you go back and you see where that law came from, eh, oh, yeah. probably not. The rotary, the rotary shift thing is ridiculous. Is, is just and, a terrible idea. But And yeah. Kimco knew better. That's the reason I don't have any sympathy for them, is they tried to skate in. They tried to, hopefully no one will notice this, and we can sell these until we get this transmission issue worked out. And then it was kind of like, oh, we got to recall these. Okay. So you know what I did find uh, harder to um, wrap my head around than the um, than the actual shift pattern itself was the fact that it was semi-automated because I'm so conditioned to using a clutch. So I ended up you don't have to use the clutch. Oh yeah, yeah. To start out with, it's got the centrifugal clutch in it. So yeah, when you let yeah, you'll actually notice. You'll I don't know for me at least like. If I don't clutch properly, I'll, I'll notice as soon as I start to let the lever out before I even feel the bike react to it. Right. So I would, I would clutch incorrectly and then I would shift and everything would be really, that everything would be totally fine and I'd be totally freaked out by it. Well, and, and the, I don't know. And the reason why is because everywhere else in the world, this was designed as an auto clutch. The same thing that they used to have on the old Cubs and CT70s and stuff. Where there I was going to say, it's the same shift pattern as the CT70, right? Right. That's exactly. Everywhere else in the world, there's no clutch lever on this bike. You still have to shift through the gears, but you don't have any clutching. It is all done automatically. The thing was, in the United States, they wanted to compete with the Grom and the Z125. And in this country, an auto clutch is considered kind of like scooters, very effeminate, very uh, not a real motorcycle. So they very hurriedly 
went through their Taiwanese parts bin of parts that were available and slapped a manual clutch on it, doing as little as possible to the motor. And that's that's uh, why it didn't have the right shift pattern, and it had that weird thing where the clutch didn't engage until after you revved it up, even when you let the clutch out at a stop. You had to get going for it. It was just goofy and weird, and they they half-assed it. Truthfully, they should. I really hope that when they get the when they get the transmission sorted out to have a proper shift pattern, I really hope it doesn't raise the price of the bike too much, because I think people are willing to overlook the fact that it's not a name like Hyundai or Kawasaki for $2,000. I think for even for $2,300, for $2,500, nobody is going to, everybody's going to say, well, for a few hundred dollars more, I can have a Kawasaki. For a grand more, I can have a Honda. Right. And I think a lot more people are going to be looking at it from the, the cost standpoint and the brand name standpoint than the fact that it's an <clears> adult sized motorcycle with real wheels, not 12 inch wheels. What I what I see that for what I see that where I see the Kimco fitting in really well um, and a sort of a gateway drug is it's perfect for college campuses on on a couple levels. It's small, it's light, it'll run for a month on five dollars worth of gas. Um, also, parents can throw it on a credit card for their kid, and you know the payment easy you know twelve easy payments or whatever of two hundred dollars a month, and and you're done. So. So I agree with you on on the pricing of that, and um, I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> oh, I, I was going to tell you last week we talked about the genuine uh, 400C that was the the Honda Copy 400 single that I was real excited about, and Garrett and I were saying pricing. Uh, we were thinking it would be hey if that came in at thirty nine ninety five that'd be forty six hundred dollars, so a little Ooh. bit high. Uh, getting pretty close to the, you know, forty nine ninety five. You're going to pay for uh, uh, a seven. Yeah. Well, I was going to say uh, uh, any of like the three hundred mm-hmm. uh, Japanese oh, yeah, bikes. Sorry. The, yeah, yeah. The CBR three hundred or three hundred Ninja and stuff. And yes. And I'm not sure. It's a bad bike, but it's certainly doesn't have a Japanese brand name associated with it, and that might be pretty tough. Now, I will say, I think Genuine's a good company, but uh, I, I was surprised at the price when I saw it. I'm not sure how well it's going to sell at that price. Speaking of Genuine's, have you seen the Buddy Kick? Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was kind of um, interested. That's actually right teetering on the edge between too high and too low. I'm not saying it's priced just right. I'm just saying it's... The price of that, especially like my market position, is our genuine dealer is Phil's dealer, which is also our Vespa dealer. So if you're looking at that, it's like, well, if I want something that looks like a Vespa for that money, I could also buy a used actual Vespa, a gently used actual Vespa. Mm Because it seems like all the 150s that come in, like my mom's is a perfect example. She bought her 150. Hers is like an 07 or an 09. It's an older scooter. Had 1,300 miles on it. looked brand new when she got it. Um, Because... It was a smaller displacement bike or scooter, and somebody just rode it back and forth to their mailbox to get their mail every day. And I feel like there's a lot of stories like that with the smaller displacement bikes. So if you're looking at a buddy kick, it's like, well, for the same amount of money, I can get a used um, a used Vespa. But the same thing happens in the car world. It's like, oh, for the price of this brand new lower-end sports car, I could get a few years older 
um, <clears throat> a few years Why? older, exotic or whatever. And it's like, okay, but now I have to finance it. Now I have to maintain it. Why, why would I buy a 2017 Ford, Ford Focus RS for 40 grand when for 42 grand I can buy a 2001 Porsche 911 Turbo? Is that what right. you're that- <laughs> I'm kind of getting that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the Porsche 911 Turbo would be a tremendous investment. If uh, <laughs> I think the 99, I think you guys actually talked about this when Brad was on. Yeah. It always comes around to Porsches. Sorry. Um, no, it's all right. <laughs> I, just, I, I just throw that one in. We can bring it to cars a little bit because there was a cycle car thing that I discovered that I want to talk about that Peter already knew about because Peter knows everything that has a uh, a motorcycle engine on it, which is super cool. You're a good friend to have, Peter. <laughs> yeah, the uh, Blackjack Zero. You sent me a picture. Oh, man. With, with yes. the Moto Guzzi engine. It's the uh, Griso engine, too, I believe. I think the way, they're, like, the way the kit's set up now is that you use a Griso engine. It was originally is, uh, designed to use a... Volkswagen Type 1 air-cooled engine out in front of the front wheels. Which I saw that, and it's super goofy looking. Yeah. What was this one? The Blackjack? What was it? Blackjack, the Blackjack Zero. Zero. It's, it's it looks like a 90s, 90s Morgan. If they had made a Morgan three-wheeler uh-huh. okay. in the 90s, like as a retro-futuristic Plymouth Prowler type of thing, it actually looks kind of like the the uh, the love child of a Morgan three-wheeler. And a a Panos AIV, if you've ever seen one of those, I can I can see that, yeah, yeah. I I think it would be underpowered. I just with with the the Blackjack Zero is just too much to haul around with a Moto Guzzi engine. Yeah, because the Griso engine is it's eighty horsepower or something like that. It's gonna think. it's you know my. Ford Escort was 90 horsepower. It's not going to oh, be... My daily driver's 100 horse, so... Yeah, it, 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 it's it's torquey, and it's and it's got some power, but I just think that compared with how fun those can be in a motorcycle, I think putting that much weight, it's going to feel anemic. Now, I have seen uh, a Morgan replica. I think they call it the the cycle king something like that uh which is a kit built morgan replica with an 1100 pan european uh what we call the st1100 four cylinder water cooled honda motor that was really cool and i could i could see that being more adaptable to that kind of thing um i just looked it up a griso is 91 horsepower 91 horsepower at 7,000 RPM, so kind of a peaky motor. Yeah, I, I think it, it could be I think it could be entertaining. I'm not sure that makes me want to run out and, and spend the obscene amount of money it would take to build one. Uh, yeah, you'd have to spend a little over it puts you well within territory of buying a brand new um, Can-Am or a brand new uh, Slingshot so my father and I are supposed to test drive slingshots at some point this year. Speaking, we, we got we're invited. <laughs> speaking of that, I've always said that a what the slingshot really needs to be perfect is two rear wheels. KTM announced that they are going to bring the crossbow, the X-bow, uh, to the United States in 2017, and I was all excited about it. Until, until you heard the price. No, not that. They said they're bringing it in as a track car. 
they didn't mention anything about it being street legal. And I was like, well, <laughs> okay, it's a rich man's toy. There's a million track cars out there that are really cool, very sharp yeah. handling cars. But if you can't drive it on the street, I don't care about it. So I was a little yeah. disappointed by that. Yeah, it's uh, it's less fun. It would be more fun if you could drive it to the track and then drive it home, you know, theoretically. But I think those days are behind us, really, as far as being able to have a cool something cool you can drive something like that. I should say something that's stripped down that you could drive to the track. You know, you could you could still obviously drive a Miata to the track or. Well, the only thing that she's seven or that the slingshot has going for it is it's three wheels so it doesn't have to meet all of the car safety regs it doesn't have to have you know uh airbags it doesn't have to have uh a windshield it doesn't have to have all that stuff because it has three wheels it's a motorcycle it only has to meet the motorcycle safety regs so- and i i think the the polar they they missed the the boat on that going with the GM Ecotech engine and, and driveline in there because of, of all the extra weight, it would seem like they could have partnered with someone or got some kind of inline four cylinder thousand CC motorcycle, uh, bolted it up to, I don't know, like a T five transmission or whatever. Uh, uh, I know two guys and, that... and, and saved and saved a bunch of weight off that thing. However, I know two guys of the two people that I know who have bought a slingshot both of them said one of the big selling points was it was a tried and true gm drive line they could get it serviced at you know jiffy lube that they they didn't have any qualms about getting it serviced or repaired or maintained and they knew it was a, a fairly reliable unit so that may have been i'm sure that factored well into it yeah, yeah a calculated uh, compromise that they decided to go with. Fair enough. And, and I only say that because I was in, well, I'm always reminded every month when I announce it uh, at Milan for the heads up races, uh, we have uh, drag bikes and uh, they're all turbocharged Hayabusa's and they run on DOT street tires and they have like 69 inch wheelbases and they make like, you know, somewhere around 650 horsepower because they go Whew. 680s at 210 miles an hour. Good God. Uh, and, and I just thought, okay, so you tune, you detune that to run on pump gas, and you put that in. I mean, what does that drive line weigh, right? So, and you'd have all the torque you'd want because it's uh, your. It'd, it'd be substantially better because the turbo could provide you with all the extra right. torque. Right. I do appreciate the selling point as being okay. It's a tried and true motor, but when you look at like your auto, your cars and stuff, like what wears out in a hundred thousand miles? It's not. It's not the important stuff. It's the piddly little shit. It's all well, the trim you, and stuff that wears out. Unless you have a front-wheel out. drive Chrysler, and you're going to lose your transmission at 50000 Well, that's true. That's true. I just feel like if I was buying something like that, and again, I mean, it's just really easy for me to say because I'm not the one ponying up, you know, five figures for one. But the the fact that the drivetrain is something that is, uh, to reuse uh, something I used earlier, a belly button drivetrain that everybody has parts for. It's like, okay, that's not why I came to the dealership to buy it. I want it because it was weird and different. But then again, there are people that want stuff that seems weird and different that really, you know, isn't all that weird and different. Think about how many Chrysler PT Cruisers they sold. Yeah. Everybody had one of those. That became a very common car very fast, but everybody thought they were being really unique and really cool for buying one. 
and or uh, think about how many Harley Davidsons they sell in a given year, and how Alan. and how few uh, Peugeots sure. were sold. Even though they were really good cars, they were so mm-hmm. different they scared people. Uh, gee, Chevy. Uh, Suzuki Chevy Kizashis. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was really pissed off that uh, did I ever? Did we talk about when you were on Camden Tub about when I decided I really wanted an SX4? No. I mean, I thought that was the coolest car in the world. All-wheel drive, six-speed, two-liter, all-aluminum twin cam, 140 horse in a car that – that one was kind of weird too. It's like Suzuki doesn't seem like they make a car to any specific class because that felt like it was between a B and a C segment car. It was like a B and a half. It and, was really and, weird. And same thing with the – the Kazashi, everybody said, wow, for its class, you know, it's got a really small back seat. It's just a little bit too short to be in the class that it's, you know, comparing yeah. to a Corolla yeah. or a, a Stanza or something like that. So I just yeah. remember looking at their marketing material, like the how disinterested the dealer was, how small the dealer was, and looking at their marketing material. And I was like 20 at the time. And like, they're, like the, the brochures and, and stuff. I don't really care about the marketing of any given thing, but I know a lot of people do. And that influences a lot of people. And just looking at their very, like, it looked like a car brochure from 1996, but this was 20, you know, this was like a 2008, I think. Well, and I was just like, these guys are doomed. I, I think that Suzuki is, is one of the most schizophrenic company on the bike side and the car side. And especially on the car side, it seemed like, there were just these stoned engineers in Japan going, hey, let's do this weird thing. And all of the Americans were just sick of their crap. It's like, you know, <laughs> we're just going to phone this in because these guys can't give us a normal product. We we have a sedan that's really awesome, but it doesn't have enough power, and it's this, the rear seat's too small. And we get these weird bikes that, you know, what? A 650cc single-cylinder cruiser. And it, which originally had a four-speed four-speed transmission in it when they first made the Savage. It's like, what 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 is this? You know, yeah. the, the Hayabusa. Let's make the fastest thing possible, but make it you know the size of a touring bike. And well, the the X ninety and the SX four. You can just go down the list, and it's like, would you just give me something normal to sell people? Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Is stop sending us great cars. Send us a car that we can sell. I'm willing to bet that one of the best-selling Suzukis in the U.S. was probably the Esteem, which was probably one of the worst cars they built in the 90s. Well, I look around, and everything I see that Suzuki is those awful Daewoo's that got rebadged. The the Lanos and the Nubria, they got rebadged. Oh, the Reno? The Suzuki Reno, I think, was one of them? Yeah, and and it was... Shout out to Brad. I can't remember what they called them when they were... When they were Suzuki's, but they were bad and weird. And- yeah, but they probably sold a ton of them. They probably sold more than the SX4s and the Kizashis that we love, now, that I- everybody loved. I, I'm almost willing to bet, and like, if it's a car that every automotive journalist can agree that they love, that car is doomed. It's like a dog in a young adult novel. Like, you know what's going to die by the end of the book. <laughs> so, let's see uh, here. So you're going to Vintage Days. Yes, I am. I am bringing, uh, I think, $350 cash with me and a bunch of Harley-Davidson parts. And it is my goal to buy and sell all weekend so I can end up with hopefully the same amount of money or a little more. Well, I uh, I, I don't know if I oh, ever... It, lots of fireworks. I forgot. I did purchase a lot of fireworks for AMA Vintage Days. 
Fireworks? So, yeah, I mean, bottle rockets, uh, mini Roman candles. The mini Roman candles are nice because then when you're really drunk and you're doing motorcycle jousting with Roman candles, they don't hurt as much when one hits you in the chest. And they actually let you set these off at the track. Oh, God, no. No, no. They, they, they don't let you, but I mean, that's, you know. Oh, because I, I can remember when I used to go to the World Superbike when it was up in Minnesota. Uh, yeah, anytime anybody firecracker it was like the jackbooted thugs descended on the campground ferreting them out and getting them out of there as quickly as possible there was you you, you could run around naked and they wouldn't ignore it but boy fireworks was the one thing fireworks i haven't heard that about this but again i'm gonna i'm not gonna be the one to screw it up for everybody so i'm gonna play it by ear so i'm gonna wait until i hear other people setting them off first for a couple hours (laughs) and then at that point then i will but again i didn't i didn't bring anything crazy when i say i bring a lot of fireworks i mean a lot of firecrackers a lot of bottle rockets and a lot of roman candles like i'm bringing mortars and putting on a big display um, hey, can we can I circle back to something real quick before we go back to that? Just yeah. uh, trying to jump in. So if you guys want to know where all of the Suzuki's in North America were sold, well, other than Canada, just make a trip to either St. Thomas or St. John in the U.S. Virgin Islands, because if the car isn't like a Jeep Wrangler, it's usually a Suzuki Samurai or a Suzuki Grand Vitara. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. Some other markets, Suzuki's are a leader. You know, uh, I know Australia. There's an awful lot of Suzuki's getting sold in Australia, New Zealand. I believe when Suzuki left the U.S. market, they were the best-selling manufacturer in Japan. Yeah. When you're looking at the and when you're looking at the K class cars, like the <laughs> 660 cc and smaller, I mean that makes perfect sense. Right. And and they, uh, that's why they left. They were like, okay, we're we we are just dumping money down a hole, and we don't need this. We're getting so little return. Uh, it's interesting that the uh, Kizashi just went out of production like January of this year because it was selling really well in Asia. Yeah. Crazy. I, I think that's interesting. Like all of the Japanese market cars that they're like, no, we're good. We'll keep this to ourselves. So many of them had that had trial runs over here. Um, a lot of people don't know this. The original Prince Skyline, um, the BLRA... I want to say the BLRA3, the original Prince Skyline. No, that's not the BLRA3. That's the uh, the uh, ALSI one, I believe. In 1957, I believe they actually brought, I think, around 50 of them over here to well, see yeah. how they would do that- Prince Skylines, and it was like, hey, you know, it's not doing too well, so I it it never took off. So people were talking about, you know. Back in the 90s and 2000s, the GTR was the hot car to have, and everybody, I want one. And they were apparently already here, just a, really a ways before. Well, you know, prior to 1967, <coughs> you didn't have any emissions. You didn't have any lighting requirements other than sealed beams. And it was really easy to just take some foreign market car and say, no, let's try it over there. You yeah. Know, and, oh, and, yeah, absolutely. And you didn't have to do any development work to make it uh, federally legal. And after that, you know, after 67, then all of a sudden there was more and more and it became more and more difficult to to get something so you could sell it here. Yeah, and, and it was the ALSI 1. 
And I'm surprised the car didn't do better here. It was probably just the name didn't have any recognition because it was pretty much styled to look like a 1950s American car. Well, and that's also back when <clears throat> Japanese was considered crap, you know. Yeah, inferior. Yeah, crap, yeah, I'm not going to buy, you know. Pot what metal. Do you, what, what do you think this is, a transistor radio? They don't know how to build a car. It's it really interesting. I, I have, I think it was a 67 Torino owner's report and this was the first year 67 whatever the first year that this particular model torino was out and in the first 12 months it came out they surveyed customers or readers on how they liked their torino and it was astounding the people who were reporting like yeah my trunk lid bolts rusted out it's like this was a car less than a year old, you know, weather stripping, mm-hmm. pulling off and stuff like that. And at the end, they were like, well, you know, standard, typical reliability, nothing to really complain about. And I was like, wow, you forget how far yeah. we've come. It go, goes back to there are. And now you can find it, now a bank finance a new car for 84 months, cause, you know, because it's expected that it'll hold together at least that long. Yeah. I uh, I butt heads with with um, some people, even like on Camden Tubbed a lot, just because I have really strong opinions. Like I really don't like Korean cars because, yeah, they've gotten better, but I still believe that, you know, they still have a long way to go. And it's like, OK, yeah, they've gotten better, but they're chasing a moving target. If you look at like the Japanese car uh, manufacturers and how much effort and work they put into building a better car for the U.S. market from the very beginning versus a lot of the Korean manufacturers had dumped on them two or three generation old um, Japanese platforms from Mazda or or whoever, and it was just like, okay, yeah, you know, we'll we'll, we'll make do with this. So I'm going to disagree with you a little bit on that. Just having driven Korean cars, for it's okay because everybody does. Yeah. No, and, and I'm just saying I can I can I can agree with you to a point. Like up to about 2011, they definitely felt about a generation to a generation and a half behind. But anything say in the last three to four years um, is is night and day. So like a brand new Hyundai Genesis. Um, you get a V6 all-wheel drive, one of those for like forty-five grand, and it's every bit as good. Forty-five thousand dollars for a Hyundai, and again, I sound like the guy that when the first Super came out, ten thousand dollars for Toyota. Yeah, but the thing is, is it's every bit as good as fill-in sixty-thousand-dollar German luxury car. Now, at I, I will in the, also... in the same way that the Lexus, in the same way that the LX four hundred Lexus back in say nineteen ninety was equal to Mercedes at significantly less that's where like say the hyundai genesis is at this point now and i will also disagree with your comment that they're hitting a a moving target because there are certain companies that are better than they were 10 years ago and there are some like nissan that are probably more trouble prone than they were oh yeah absolutely Uh, Absolutely. i think some of the other a lot of uh, japanese companies have slipped um they've become either complacent or they've actually slipped um, yeah. in quality. I think they've worked too hard to try and w- w- get down to a price. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Hon- H- Hondas for sure. Only in the last two years have kind of come back to be what a Honda should be. Um, Toyota's getting there again. Um, but their low price cars like the Corolla and even some of the Camry trims, you know, and then I think there are like, uh, BMW and Mercedes. It's a crapshoot. One model's absolutely outstanding, run forever, never give a problem, and you get another one that's just going to be 
all kinds of stupid little cheap stuff is going to break off on the inside of it, and you're going to have all kinds of little either electrical problems or weird things with the, you know, uh, engine accessory not not the block itself but the engine accessories you're going to have all kinds of little problems with you know the 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 little electronic sensors in the you know mass air sensor or something like that it's just going to constantly give you fits and it kind of yeah they're on average but the comparison between models is way all over the board yeah and quite Absolutely. honestly, I would put uh, uh, probably Suzuki in their bikes in that same category. They have some really good bikes. They have some that are just crap. So what would you say would be overall, if you had to go out and buy a brand new Japanese bike right now, and just from a standpoint of the total lineup, not individual bikes because there are going to be some bright spots and some dark spots in any lineup, but just overall, what brand would you steer away from if you had to? Um, as much as I like so many of the weird things that Suzuki has done, I think Suzuki is clearly a step down from Kawasaki, Yamaha, and Honda. Okay, interesting. Very interesting. I've and, never just I, I've never had somebody really that's really that knowledgeable that rides that many bikes be able to answer that question because it's it you know when you don't when you're not as deep into you know motorcycles you can be an avid motorcyclist but really only be interested in it you know really only know about the bikes you're interested in whereas you seem to follow the industry as a whole a lot especially as a result of this podcast yeah, so I will say I think some of Suzuki's engines are some of the most bulletproof out there it's all the other little stuff it's all the little things that are going to break. It's all the little things that are going to fatigue. It's it's all the electronic components that are going to go on the fritz. Um, uh, Eric, what would you say? I I won't disagree. I, I won't disagree with you too much on that. I would say Kawasaki, um, uh, Kawasaki and Suzuki, kind of in the same area as far as reliability. Um, there's some weird Kawasaki stuff. Honda, I mean, at the end of the day, it is the Honda Motor Corporation. So they may not be really exciting, especially these days. Um, we can go into the whole thing of how the CBR600RR is supposedly going to be discontinued because it doesn't sell well, which bombshell you haven't updated it since 2004. So, I'm, you know, why am I not shocked? But um Yamaha, kind of the same thing. They're just an engine, more of an, as much of an engineering company as anything else. Suzuki and Kawasaki are always sort of operating on budgets, and it kind of shows in, in as Pete said, in the in the little things. Yeah, I, I will say that I think where Honda really outshines even Yamaha, and uh, last week Garrett kind of alluded to this, their smaller motors and their smaller bikes. Uh, you know, you look at a at a Honda. F Forza scooter, which is, you know, it's fairly expensive, but the plastic's not going to deteriorate and crack in two years. It's the switch gear is going to work like butter for, you know, 10, 15 years on it. They build their small bikes to the same level as their big bikes. And I don't think other people do that. I think, uh, you know, the, the single cylinder, uh, Yamahas that Garrett was talking about yesterday. He's saying, you know, their failure rates two to four times as great as some of the Honda dirt bikes. Uh, 
their scooters. I if you look at like the the Honda 150 scooter or the Forza, and then you go look at uh, a Yamaha S Max. There's no comparison. The Honda's just put together better. Now they're going to charge so, you for it. They're going to pay. Yeah. You're going to pay more for it. Um, and unfortunately, the way this scooter and motorcycle market is, you probably aren't going to be able to recoup that in resale value. So that's going to be yeah. money that's just going to go out the window unless you want to hold on to it for 15 years. To take that to an older generation, and hopefully I get the the, the names right. How many old Honda Sprees do you still see running around? And in relatively decent shape, even if they've been you know, beat to death. And then I think the equivalent was a Yamaha Raz. Am I right on that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you don't see too many of those around because, I mean, you see some, but it's like a seven to one ratio. Right. And and some of it was Honda was much better at selling scooters. Marketing. But I think even taking that into account, uh, just look at how many Honda Expresses are still out there. And that was a $398 vehicle. It, it's just astounding how, now granted, there was nothing to it. It was, you know, a single tube frame, but they engineered everything so it continued to work, and that's a really impressive thing. And I say this as a Yamaha guy when I was I was just trying to do the math or trying to remember the bikes I've owned, and with the exception of one motorcycle I've ever owned, they've all been Yamahas, except for one Honda CBR900RR, and that was a nice bike, but couldn't get rid of it fast enough because it had no pa- there was no passion in it for me or there the, the bike exuded no passion to me which seems odd considering that was you know one of the great early 90s super bikes now i i will also say that when yamaha steps up their game something like the uh fjr 1300 uh they can they can make as solid a product as anybody i mean those things just run forever um and even some of the older Suzukis, you know, the the air cooled GS motors. Wow, they would just GS eight fifty G. You can run one of those for a hundred thousand miles, uh, freshen it up a little bit, and run it for a hundred thousand more, which is amazing for an air cooled motor. And how many like Yamaha FJ twelve hundreds ran for you know close to six digit mileage? Right. Yeah. So speaking of small displacement, especially Yamahas, going back to the TW200 again, which is a favorite topic of (laughs) of this podcast and me. Um, Actually, Eric, actually both of you, uh, this this is interesting. I think I've said this before on Cleveland Moto and Camden Tubbed, actually, where there's only two vehicles in my life that have – what am I thinking of here? That have lived up to or even surpassed the expectation I built up for them. And one was the air-cooled Porsche 911, and the other was the Yamaha TW200. That thing was even more fun to ride in real life than I had imagined. And part of the reason I became the kind of weirdo that has a bunch of different cars at the same time is because I was already working on my Mustang. I had a reliable daily driver of a Jeep when I was in high school, and I told my parents I wanted a motorcycle, and I wanted a TW200. And they said, absolutely not, but you can have a British sports car. So I ended up with three by the time I graduated. (laughs) <laughs> but now I, I just I still like I keep circling back to wanting a TW200, but I always wished we got the TW225 that the Japanese did. Yeah. With the round headlight and the uh, the XT wasn't it the XT225? Yeah. Which which really isn't any great shake. I mean, you're not missing much. The extra if you're in an XT225, <laughs> nice enough motor, but nothing that you'd go 
wow, this is really different than a TW200 motor. So, Now, do you see uh, ever see Yamaha getting to a point where they end up just putting that motor in TW200s kind of for the U.S. market by default? Or No, I am betting that if they ever do anything, they will go to the water-cooled motor from the... Uh, whatever, their, their 250 water-cooled motor. Because okay. they'll, they'll need to for noise and emissions. Okay, because it's, it's really the only... Fuel injection and water cooling will be the next generation, if there is one. It may just go away when they get to the point where they can't get it past emissions anymore. Right. I mean, every MSF course in the country has, you know, a fleet of those that get replaced every few years. And they seem they seem to hold their value really, really well, too. Like a few-year-old TW200, at least in my area, is still... It's at the point where it's like a $3,000, $3,300 bike, and it's like, why don't I just spend a couple hundred more and get a brand new one? Right. Yeah. They they definitely keep their value. I think my that's really the ideal second bike for me is something that I can put historical plates on because it's not going to be something I ride as often. And so now I'm looking kind of at 87 to 91 TW200s because even if I want a disc brake front end, I just have to get a front end from a newer bike, and there's a ton of those things out there. So... And really, at the speeds those go, the 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 drum brake is not as scary as it's perfectly seems. adequate. Yeah, I don't know. That's kind of where I'm at. Um, okay. Well, I uh, I'm going to change tracks dramatically here, and um, okay, I mentioned this I think to Eric at one point in the past, but I have been following the. Asia Road Racing Series, AIRC, Asian Road Racing Championship. And they have uh, 600, uh, 250, I think uh, 125, no, I take that back, 250, and uh, underbone 130cc underbone racing, which is like the Cub style. Okay. That's popular over there that we don't get here, and so I've been I've been learning to follow uh, some of the Asian road racing people, and I got to talk about somebody that is uh, one of the coolest people in general in the world. Naoko Takasugi is her name. She is a female Japanese road racer. She is. 36. She's been road racing professionally in Asia since she was 24. She has raced everything. 125 GP bikes, 250 singles, 600 uh, super stocks, uh, underbone racing. She's done everything. She's deaf. She was born deaf. She's got this wild hair where it's permed into a fro blonde and she stacks it up on top of her head she looks like sideshow bob with the way her hair is and it's like i'm i'm if there's anybody in the world i would want more people to know about it's it would be her because it's like wow okay you're born deaf you're a female rider you you have this crazy really cool look to your hair and yourself and You've been road racing professionally without hitting it really big for 12 years. There's just, it, it's like, it's like, 
just somebody you want to root for. So, uh, Mike, really cool. My contribution to uh, the whole world of motorcycling is everybody needs to know the name of Naoko Takasugi. I will look her up when we are done. Yes. And my other favorite writer is Ferlando Herdian, just because his name is so much fun to say. Herlando. <laughs> if I ever get a pet, I'm going to name him Herlando, just because it's such a great name. Herlando. Girlfriend's really mad because I keep picking out names for pets that we don't own yet, because we decided that when we get a home of our own, we want to get a Bengal kitten. And a bearded dragon, because she had a bearded dragon named uh, Pancake, which you've ever seen the way they flatten themselves out. Mm -hmm. It's the best possible name. So I decided I want to get one and name it Speed Bump and have it hang out in the garage slash driveway with me while I work (laughs) on stuff. And then I really want to have a cat named Boxster, because I'm a Porsche guy, and that's actually a really cute name for a cat. She's like, does we have to call it Speed Bump? Can we name it something else? I'm like, there's no better name for something that suns itself in your driveway. One of my uh, roommates in college uh, had an iguana, and, and it was called Fluffy. So, yeah, I, I get where you're going with that. <laughs> I had a good friend that had a dog that kind of adopted them. He showed up in the backyard and kind of hung around until they started feeding it. And they thought, well, we better take it to the vet, you know, get it deloused and wormed and whatever. So they took it in. Sure. They were like, what's the dog's name? And they're like, we never gave him a name. He's just the dog. So they, on his vet records, he was the dog was his name. <laughs> And a year or two later, they got a cat, and the cat's name was the, the cat. cat, not the dog. They called him Naughty for short, but it was not the dog. <laughs> not the dog. That's good. That's very good. Okay, well, we're running real long here, even with all the extra jumping around that I have to edit out. So I think we should probably should wrap this up. Thank you very much for joining us, Cam. Always a pleasure. Hey, no problem. And thank you for thank you for having me. It was wonderful. I was was really looking forward to it. Uh, I will remind everyone that we are part of the Hooniverse Podcast Network, and Camden Tub, your usual home, is part of that as well. So uh, three times a week, you can go to the Hooniverse, find our podcasts along with the main Papa Bear podcast, and uh, rate, review us on iTunes, uh, leave comments on Hooniverse, because that's the whole point of this, is to direct you to increasing traffic on the Hooniverse website. And uh, I will also remind you that we still don't have a winner in my motor sound contest. I have a wonderful copy of Modern Motorcycle Technology for the first person who can correctly identify the... Uh, basically, how many cylinders is a two-stroke or four-stroke and is it air-cooled or not? Uh, if you can name anything else about the bike, that would be a bonus. Uh, so I, I would just got- like to uh, sorry. I would just like to point out that we had a trivia contest that had four what we thought were really difficult questions, and somebody had answered it by the time I had gotten to work that morning that the episode went live. Well, we we have had this going on for quite a number of weeks now, and so far we've gotten two out of four correct. So, wow. Uh, there are three at the beginning in our intro and one in the outro at the end. So uh, there is a really nice book for the first person who can name those four types of motors. You're, uh, you're really inspiring me to make sports car or walrus finally happen. <laughs> you ever heard of like a walrus, the, the vocalizations they make? Yes. I want to take a bunch of engine noises, probably mostly V8s and Porsche flat sixes, air-cooled flat sixes, and combine them with walrus noises 
and I've always wanted to have a guest on and I've wanted to do the whole radio shock jock production thing. So we'd all have to record at once and everybody gets a buzzer. We play the noise live and everybody has to put their vote in and hit the buzzer. And we have to figure out if it's a sports car or a walrus. Uh Uh-huh. I would probably really suck at that. Because I don't know sports sports cars or wall rye. Well, they sound the same. Well, I, I have don't to know say what the that plural of walrus is. Walrus? Sure, it's walruses. Uh, when I was up in Alaska, there was a video uh, I filmed of sea lions sunning themselves on the rocks and biting each other and fighting and attempting to have sex. You know, things that they do. And... Uh, when you listen back to the soundtrack, it just sounds like a whole bunch of people belching really big root beer burps. <laughs> I was like, wow, I never, I, at the time I didn't realize it, but when you don't you're see like, it and you hear it, it's like, wow. At this the is time you're watching it filming it, like, wow, nature's majesty is so beautiful and, and wonderful. Yeah. And you're like, this is some root beer burps. Yep. Gonna go find an A&W. Okay, well... Thank you very much for being here, Eric. Thank you. Uh, hey, sorry for being late, but no always problem. fun. We should call it. <laughs>